Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the political party. This episode features James Cleverly, the Foreign Office Minister, who returns to the show. He was last on about four years ago. Obviously, a lot has happened since then, not just globally, not just nationally, but James has become a far more prominent and visible member of the government. We talk about that, uh, and this is a cracker. Even perhaps even more fun than the last time he was on. And James is one of my favourite guests in the history of the show. So it's great to get him back on. Uh, before all that, don't forget you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. for. T- I've had so many emails about the Tom Tugan hat and the Neil Kinnock episode. And I know people don't always listen immediately when the episodes come out. So there's always a bit of a time lag sometimes on people getting in touch and a lot of tweets. I think they were both very, very special episodes. And obviously I love every episode of this podcast um but i think those two have have, have gone down i think they've become very i I just think people have absolutely loved them Uh, so i'm so pleased because they were magic to be a part of and i i know i say this from time to time but i've got the best seat in the house often sat there opposite you know neil kinnock a man who without whom labor would never have won a general election again uh, and uh, 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 just such a mega political talent sat opposite him. It's uh, you know it's incredible. It's not even a ringside seat. I, I, I'm in the ring, but I'm kind of I'm not fighting them. Obviously, but it's just amazing uh, getting to make this show. So it's just it obviously means the world that you get pleasure out of listening to this as well um, as much as I do. Um, so on that. I have some more guests to announce, and oh boy. So I'm, I'm just going to do them in chronological order. So some of these, um, if you listen to the show regularly, you'll be aware of, because I'm plugging them every week. Some of these are new announcements. So get your pen and paper at the ready, as if this was uh, you know, writing down something that you've seen on teletext. On Monday, the 11th of April, it is the rescheduled Christmas special with Rosanna Allen-Khan and Jacob Rees-Mogg. That, you don't need me to tell you this, is going to be a very special bonkers night. A week later, on Monday the 18th of April, is Labour's Rosie Duffield. Now, Rosie is an exceptional politician. She has spoken very bravely in the House of Commons about her uh, personal experience of domestic abuse. That took an incredible amount of bravery to stand up and talk about that. She's also a phenomenal defender of women's rights. Uh, That will be a very special evening. Uh, On the 16th of May, my guest is Lisa Nandy, who is a phenomenal talent, one of Labour's brightest stars. She obviously stood for the Labour leadership, is universally popular across the political spectrum and very, very funny. On the 30th of May, now this is a new announcement, Wes Streeting, touted by many, not just as a future Labour leader, but a future Labour prime minister. And as you'll have seen in recent weeks, has an ability to just cut through issues in a way um, Really, it seems that only he can, and he's very, very gifted. Uh, so that's Monday the 30th of May. He's also very funny. That would be great. On Monday the 13th of June, I'm joined by Gary Neville, England, Manchester United, and now Labour star. 
On the 27th of June, I'm joined by David Davis, who really needs no introduction at all, but obviously stood for the Tory leadership, was the first ever Secretary of State for exiting the European Union and really was the first person, first major voice to call on Boris Johnson to resign recently. And, oh man, it's always a treat when you book someone you impersonate. And really, he's the newest addition to my um, stable and he is the new Speaker of the House of Commons, Lindsay Hoyle, on the 11th of July. I mean, what a phenomenal lineup. I've only got a couple of spaces left um, for guests. I'm on the verge of confirming for the 25th of July and a, a more recent one on the 2nd of May. Um, you can get tickets for all those shows at mattford.com slash live. And I'm playing the Bloomsbury Theatre. Thank you to, I should say, my God, the gigs in Scotland are out of this world, uh, in Edinburgh and in Glasgow. Uh, and in Bath and Northampton and Leicester as well. But my, what a treat it is doing this job around the country. You can get tickets to see that show, Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right, uh, at the Bloomsbury Theatre on Saturday the 23rd of April, as well as around the country. Uh, I'm going to Eastleigh and Brighton. I think both Brighton dates have sold out and Leeds has as well now. Um, but all over the country, Nottingham. Um, I always forget how terrible at self-promotion. I just did the political party dates really slickly. And the rest have escaped my mind. But if you go to mattford.com, everything's there. Tickets to see the podcast and tickets to see the stand-up show. So hopefully I'll see you in the future in one of those. Anyway, on to today's business, which is firstly uh, some stand-up uh, stand comedy recorded at the Duchess Theatre, followed by uh, an interview with James Cleverly, who is always such brilliant, honest value in every regard. Rishi Sunak, of course. Uh, I've been watching Rishi Sunak's uh, political stock fall has been uh, one of the most predictable things in modern politics. Uh, it really is straightforward. When he was giving us free money, we liked Rishi. Now he's taxing it back. We don't like Rishi. I mean, it's really not anything harder to understand than this. Free stuff? Yeah. We pay for stuff? No, we no not. So now he is. I mean, his catchphrase has gone from whatever it takes to, mate, I, I've got fuck all, I can't help you, I'm so sorry. <laughs> After the pandemic, I said, mate, I'm all out of cash, I'm sorry, I've got fuck all. <laughs> I don't think he's going to be repeating this at Tory party conferences like his last uh, catchphrase, but obviously on spring statement day, he was pictured filling up a car to advertise the 5p cut to fuel duty. Uh, it turns out it wasn't his car. Uh, it was filling up someone else's car, which is you know, totally a normal thing to do. Um, that's a cliche, isn't it? In Britain on budget day, they cut fuel tax, you go out and fill up each other's cars, we're just so happy. And, uh, I mean, we knew it wasn't his car, because in the photo of him filling it up, he's filling it up, looking at the car. No British person fills up their car like that. Everyone doesn't look at the car, they look at the meter over their shoulder, go, 97, 98, 99. Oh, one, you fucking cunt. <laughs> pay it pump, mate. I pressed pay it pump, you fucking lord. Coming back to the car with the ginsters, his missus going, you've just eaten. I know, but they were on offer, man. We've got a wild bean cafe in there. What was I meant to do? Not get a latte? Come on, love. I mean, this is the thing with the Russian connection, obviously. Rishi does not like the fact that we ask about his wife. His wife has a £700 million stake in a Russian firm called Infosys that delivered a, a £12 million dividend this year alone. But do not ask our Chancellor, the money man, where his family gets their money from, because that he does not like, don't bring my wife into it. Now, I don't think it's fair to ask me questions about my wife. I mean, obviously, what he should have said was, you keep my wife's name out of your fucking mouth. <laughs>
And uh, of course, the Labour Party launched their local election campaign. I don't know if people are excited about Labour's uh, local election campaign. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> yes, they did. <laughs> this is news. I love the fact that uh, a political night, I'm actually telling you what the news is, and we were finding this out for the first time. They have. Uh, it, it, Keir Starmer launched it up in Bury the other week. It's one of those classic things where they use one of those um, phrases. I get up every morning, the first thing on my mind, how do I change this country for the better? And you think, well, you're not like any other man I know, Keir, because when most blokes wake up in the morning, that's not the first thing on their mind. First thing on my mind is, oh my God, am I going to piss the bed? I wake up in the morning, I wonder, is this erection going to go down before I can piss? <laughs> Standing there by the toilet thinking, Jesus Christ, let the damn thing go down, I've got to pee with a rock on. Then I go to the fridge, get a slice of ham and a slice of cheese, watch Sky Sports News. About two hours later, I start to think about changing our society. <laughs> the better. <laughs> Apparently Labour are going to do in this local election campaign. I mean, I actually think they should have been way more muscular over party games. So this is the thing I go, should we have been tougher about it? And then you hear what they got planned and you go, fuck it now. Apparently in every local area in Britain, they're going to target with data and it's going to say X amount of people in this area died of COVID while Boris Johnson and his aides parted. Oh. <laughs> fuck it out. Oh, yeah. All your mates died. Remember to vote Labour on the 5th. <laughs> It's a bit of a pivot, isn't it? I mean, and finally, uh, apparently there are plans to celebrate Margaret Thatcher Day. <laughs> yeah, apparently we're going to have Margaret Thatcher Day as a national day of celebration. I mean, if we're going to do it, I think we should just go for it. Really embrace Thatcherism, you know. Uh, uh, have, you know, I mean, these days when you have like a feast day, people who invent cocktails, you know, have a cocktail called a Belgrano and sink a few. <laughs> too soon, too soon. No, 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 no. Too soon, 40 years too soon <laughs> for the people of uh, the Duchess Theatre. Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, uh, if, well, at least gentlemen, uh, I I'm not sure how to address the other half. Um, <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, tonight's guest is one of the best guests I've ever had uh, in the history of the show. I've been doing it for eight years. He came on the show four years ago uh, and he was really funny. He's super sharp. He's a Foreign Office Minister. He was a Minister Without Portfolio. Uh, he's somebody who knows the Conservative Party well. He was co-chair. Uh, and he is one of the most talented communicators, one of the most honest communicators in the government. Please give a hero's welcome to James Cleverley. <laughs> James, welcome to the show. Thank you, mate. Thank do you want you. me to pour the Guinness for you? I, I wasn't sure what the no, uh, form I'll, was. No, I'll do it. I'll You've done do it yourself it. before, right? Maybe once or twice. You know, some, so some of the guests... <laughs> is that all right? Are you expecting... Are you expecting this? Is, it's going to be a very long interview or a very short interview where I get very drunk very quickly. Well, I mean, both sound good. You know, as long as you're... Uh, you're off the record, so don't, don't worry about that. Yeah, you, uh, you sup up and you just sit back and enjoy So my worry is, you're, you're, you're so, you keep saying, oh, the funniest guy. I am now the minister with responsibility of not screwing up our relationship with America, Canada, Europe, or Iran. And so, I, <laughs> and so I'm conscious that I might need to be a little bit cautious on what I say about America. You just, you took into your Guinness, mate. You don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll worry about that. I'll keep it, mate. I'm not going to, come on, I'm not going to lead you anywhere you don't want to go. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so four years ago, <laughs> bloody hell, that was a big old sip. 
It's a man's drink, mate. Uh, and you drank it like a man. Because you asked me what I was gonna what I was gonna have, and I thought I, th- I, was, I thought I was gonna be honest. I thought I should be honest. Yep. And have an amaretto sour. Do you know amaretto and lemon? Ooh. Amaretto and lemon juice. I've never had that before. No, it's very no. nice. And then I thought, no, I won't, I'll go for a pink gin. <laughs> and then I thought, no, I'll go for a like, rugby player's Guinness because I've got a bit of a reputation to maintain, haven't I? So I don't want to sit up here and say, I'll have a pink gin, please. And then, um, and then just have everyone take the piss out of me. Uh, so I've gone, I've gone for a Guinness, proper, proper manly Guinness. I'll tell you what, as well, as far as, uh, not that this, I don't want this show to turn into an advert for Guinness, that looks amazing, doesn't it, out of a can? That's right. I've seen... So, the best way of drinking a Guinness out of a can, okay, <laughs> is you need to get a pin and just pierce the top to let the, to let the, the, the gas out that fizzes yeah. it up, wait till it goes completely flat, pour it into a glass, stand it in an ultrasonic cleaning machine, which stimulates the bubbles and you get a perfect one. Now, if you've got a can, a pin, and an ultrasonic cleaning machine, best way of drinking Guinness. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't have these things, just go to a pub and order a bloody <laughs> So have you got Irish heritage, or is this purely a rugby thing? Fuck do you think? Paul McGrath. <laughs> no, I, um, no. My my heritage. My mum was from Sierra Leone, in West Africa, uh, and my dad was from uh, Wiltshire. Well, I say from. So my the Cleverly family have been from Wiltshire for a while, but both immigrant family immigrants on both sides. So mum came over from Sierra Leone in 1966 and my dad's family, the Cleverly family, came over from northern France in 1066. So both migrant families, <laughs> but one slightly more, one slightly newer than the other. And both came in historic years for this island. They did. They did. Big win. Big win for... Um, 1066 or... 1066. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, to was she here before the final then? Did, I mean, not that we'd make this about football, but. <laughs> it's you, of course it could be about football. <laughs> did, did, did she see the final and go, I need to go to England? No, so it, would have been, it w- so it would have been after the final because she came in the winter. And um, so she came on a boat because that's, that's how, you know, that's how you, most people, except for the ultra, ultra rich, which she wasn't. So that's how most people came to the UK. So she arrived on a boat. And as the boat steamed north, obviously it got colder and colder. So she went below decks and just didn't didn't go outside for most of the journey. And her elder sister, who'd already come to the UK a couple of years before, said, you'll be arriving in winter, so bring a coat, because it's going to be colder than you expect. So mum got her, like, Mary Quant mini-dress kind of, you know, light rain jacket, turned off at Liverpool Docks in November 1966, (laughs) stepped out onto deck for the first time in about two and a half weeks, and sobbed because <laughs> everything hurt and she couldn't understand why everything hurt why it hurt to breathe it hurt to blink it hurt to move and she's like what is happening to me if i caught some disease it's like no no that's a winter in liverpool welcome to england <laughs> welcome to england so she steps out of the dock and immediately bought a return ticket yeah. so yeah that was um, so that was that was that was that was mum that was mum coming to to the UK back in the 60s. It's amazing when you think of that journey on the seas to come here, you know, mm-hmm. and how attractive Britain has been to migrants and your personal story. When you see the way that we talk about migrants now, and obviously there's this whole thing about boats in the channel, do you feel a sense of conflict about the, the language around some of that sometimes? <sighs> so migration is a, is, a, is a really 
look, it's a really difficult subject, and it gets, it gets, um, I, I think, overly simplified. And a lot of things that have not been said, that have never been said by my party and others, are kind of implied or imposed uh, upon us. Um, and I, I think when I talk to most people, I talk to my constituents up in Essex, we talk about the, like, the Ukraine situation for the moment. When they see women and children uh, you know, leaving a conflict area, there's this huge wave of, of sympathy and solidarity and a desire to help. Um, and when they see fit young men, they kind of go, that just doesn't look right. That doesn't, people escaping from conflict, you know, there's, there's, people have an image about what you'd expect who's running away and, and, and who's staying to fight. In the Ukraine situation, we're seeing the old and the infirm and women and children fleeing conflict, and we're basically seeing young fit people staying and fighting, defending their homeland. And I think that feels instinctively right and fair and appropriate. And then the British people, massive waves of sympathy. You look at the Hong Kong Chinese being oppressed by the Chinese government, massive waves of sympathy. We basically wrote a blank check to Hong Kong Chinese to say, come, come here to the UK. The British people did not bat an eyelid. And so I think it goes that that sense of fair play. Um, when my mum came over, post-war, there was this big offer to the, what was then the empire, the colonies, saying, you know, we really need you to come and help rebuild, and people came. And I think there, you know, there is a, there is a, there was a warmth, there were problems, there were some serious problems, but there was generally a kind of a, a warmth. So I think this whole kind of, you know, whether the party or the country likes or doesn't like immigrants, I think is a much, 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 much too simplistic a way of looking at it. I think, you know, in the right circumstances, in, 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 in circumstances like in Ukraine or Hong Kong or Ugandan Asians or whatever, this country is incredibly hospitable. One of the most, perhaps even the most open and hospitable countries in the world. And I don't know why we don't say that more often. We should be really proud of that. I am. No, I think you're right. I think, I think the, the nuance is often lacking. So, does Pretty Patel hate migrants? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. No, um, and look, she's the Home Secretary. It's her, it's her job <laughs> to keep us safe from people that would do us harm. And when someone turns around, and like every day, and you, I took the Foreign Office, you get a bit of an, I'll tell you in a minute, but sometimes when you get briefings from, from, from people, how it kind of, you kind of go, See our Home Secretary, the first thing that happens when you become a Home Secretary is someone sits down and talks you through the list of all the people trying to destroy us, trying to kill us, murder us. And it's a big list, and it's really <laughs> scary. And then someone says, enough of that, off you go, be all kind of upbeat and kind of tiptoe through the daisies and that kind of stuff. And you're like, you've just read this big list of people that are trying to screw us over. Destroy us, kill us, murder us. Half of them are in the toy <laughs> park. Hey, but um, dish. Ah, thank you all. But <laughs> David Davis. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, so if she's a little bit kind of, if she's a little bit kind of like, you know, I'm just going to err on the side of caution, I think she can be forgiven for that because there are genuinely lots of people trying to kill us every day, some of whom are not even in the party. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been provocative, obviously. Um, it was a joke, really. But uh, based upon... <laughs> A perception that some people, however wrong they may be, uh, have perhaps um, <laughs> felt that uh, Prince Patel, and, and by extension the government as a whole, 
doesn't want uh, doesn't want to talk about migrants in in that sort of warm way that you've described. Uh, Tom Tugendhat was here a fortnight ago, and he mm. talked about migrants in a particular way. Is that because the government is choosing not to talk about immigration that way, or something else? So immigration, it, as I say, I mean, it, it, it covers such such a range of things that's, that simplifying it is really dangerous. It really is. I mean, so 2019 general election, um, 2019 general election was the kind of the unfinished business of the 2016 referendum. Yeah, yeah. I, I think most people would agree. There are a whole load of issues which everyone thought were, 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 was going to be on the uh, on the on the tip of everyone t- everyone's tongues and, and the forefront of their minds in the 2017 general election <laughs> didn't. Fast forward two years, 2019 general election. And I was talking to a lot of people, and the thing that really, really struck me about, about immigration, particularly European migration, uh, which, as I say, my default setting is to be quite, quite positive towards immigration. <laughs> yeah, as I say, it's, it's been a part of my life. A lot of my family came from uh, overseas. And it's really easy to be really, really positive about immigration if you're in one of the bits of society that generally benefits from immigration. So if you are uh, an employer and you are purchasing human capital, then having a large supply of well-educated, relatively cheap labour is nothing but good news. If you are selling your labour, then having someone else import a whole load of competition financially screws you. And when you turn around to someone that knocks on your door and says, will you vote for me? And you say, well, yeah, hang on, look, but I'm a painter decorator, and every time I turn, every time I turn, you're importing more painter decorators, and they're undercutting me, and I'm really struggling to put food on the table, and I'd like you to make it stop. And someone says, oh, that's a bit racist, mate. You can't say that. You kind of think I'm being screwed over here. So, so you talk about immigration, and I think genuinely we are we are a fair, open-minded, hospitable country. We really, really are. But when people say you're screwing me. You, you, you are, and you, you haven't asked my permission, and whenever I tell you I don't like it, you call me a racist. I think you, we've got to respond to that. And just saying, oh, you know, does that mean you're a bit racist yourself? I think, and I'm not accusing you of this, but it's just, it, you slip into that kind of binary, you know, you're on this side, you're a good guy, you're on that side, you're a bad guy. And it's much, much, much more complicated than that. And I think we do deserve, I think the country deserves us to have a bit more of a balanced, more sophisticated argument about that. There's also another element to that, though, isn't it? In, in that scenario you describe is the consumer benefits from having a, a, a choice of provider of lower prices as a result of having more painters and decorators. I mean, as a Tory, this is the market, isn't it? This is a, a yeah. positive thing. I mean, look, and, and this is one of the things that, that I've always found really funny. So the Labour Party was big. You know, immigration's a good thing. It's a universally good thing. There's no downsides. It's only a good thing. Good thing, good thing, good thing. Oh, we've got wage stagnation. Oh, it's because evil employers... I'm not putting up wages. It's like, no, 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 no. That is, an, that is an inevitable byproduct of supply and demand. You're massively increasing the supply side and you have a price correction. This is economics 101. You know, you, ha- you increase supply, supply and prices come down. And when it comes to people, prices mean wages. And so you've got the Labour Party going, yeah, yeah, loads of supply side, loads of supply side. Oh, look, look, stagnating wages. Well, those are unrelated. No, they're not unrelated. They're a direct byproduct. So if you want to make the case, if you want to make a really, really hardcore, tooth and claw, market-driven, 
you know, if you can't compete, if you can't get on your bicycle, Matt Ford from Nottingham, <laughs> screw you. I didn't think, I, I have you to really say, that. I have, well, oh, it came out, it came slightly. But I didn't think that was the Labour Party's traditional <laughs> starting point. Because, but that's the byproduct. Yeah. You, you can't have one. You can't say, I'm going to massively increase the supply side and not expect a wage correction. And wage corrections like, hurt people. Now, like, I don't, I, I'm certainly not advocating you turn off migration, but you've got to manage it. You've got to manage it. And managing it sometimes, you know, can easily be caricatured as being, as being a bit nasty and a bit harmless. But do you think sometimes... Perhaps perhaps Boris Johnson and others have fallen perhaps into trouble. Well, they do it deliberately of wanting to look tough on it, for perhaps their own party, for the sorts of constituencies they're trying to hold on to, and perhaps even is there a kind of policy effect where they don't want Britain to look like a soft touch? So talking a bit tough helps turn the tap off. See, the really funny thing is 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 that. And this is, this is maybe the insight I get being a foreign office minister. I go to other parts of the world and I see the UK as others see us. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> and you're saying, oh, talking tough and all this kind of stuff. When the Home Secretary, whose job it is to make sure that people who are trying to murder us do not come to our country and murder us, when she stands up and says, I'm going to be a bit careful to make sure people who want to murder us don't come to our country and murder us, you go, oh, yeah. <laughs> bit of dog whistle there, bit of dog whistle. Everyone else is like, sorry, what did I? Sorry, did I miss a bit? Because all I heard her say that as the minister responsible for preventing people coming here and murdering you, she's preventing people coming here and murdering you. Did did she say something I missed? Because that just sounds like baseline job of the interior minister of a country. That's literally what everyone's job is to do. So unless I missed something, that just seems like job description, not talking tough on immigration. And it's really funny, everywhere else in the world looks at us, you know, and I've been criticised, saying, oh, you know, these people are crossing, these people are crossing the Mediterranean and then crossing the Channel because you guys are a soft touch. And I'm like, wow. And, and then that is how the, that's how other parts of the world see us. So I think, you know, I think sometimes we need to, let's just say, um, I'm a, it's, it's, it's the byproduct of being a foreign office minister. You, you get to fly to somewhere else and look back at where you've just come from. And as I say, sometimes you look back and go, you know what, well, that's a good view. That's a really, really good view. And w uh, which places is it a good view from? <laughs> <laughs> well, from France, you can actually see. You know, you can see Folkestone <laughs> from, uh, from Calais. Well, apparently you can see Russia from Alaska, according to Sarah Palin. But anyway, <laughs> um, um, She's probably too uh, left-wing for you, isn't she, so? Yeah. <laughs> Weak. <laughs> Weak. I really... <laughs> so being a foreign office minister, yeah. you do inevitably do compare and contrast. And one, one of the things that, that I've really noticed is how you're treated as a minister. So when... So I used to be the minister for the Middle East and North Africa, so you, so you fly to countries... Easy gig. <laughs> really easy gig. Really <laughs> easy gig. <laughs> but you'd fly... I, so I won't tell you where, because I don't want to... Uh, it, it was Cairo. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so... Um, you about to say you saw the pyramids. So you're going to give it I up. did. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, so, when, so when, when we fly, because we're trying to be good custodians of public expenditure, uh, I, I flew economy. I flew Egypt Air economy, which is exactly as good as you would imagine the Egypt Air economy <laughs> class seats would be. Middle seat? 
middle of the three. <laughs> yeah. You didn't yeah. go to the middle seat, surely. You've got to go aisle or window. Mate. No, middle seat. You're, I middle mean, seat. I, I mean this in terms of like, you, and you carry your weight well. You're a big fella. Thank you, mate. <laughs> <laughs> you can't be squished. Are we still talking about mornings? <laughs> <laughs> you can't be squished into the middle seat. Oh, yes, mate. Oh, yeah. So anyway... So, um, did, you get a, did you have a drink? Did you have a gin and tonic? Or no, no, it's not, it's, no. Uh, so anyway, I arrived. So we land, and the Egyptian. So the protocol department in the foreign ministry, their job is to deal with incoming, you know, foreign dignitaries, of which I was one. And the protocol guy and Her Majesty's ambassador to Cairo stepped onto the plane, and the guy from the Egyptian um, uh, uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs turns around to the British ambassador, looking at the business class seats, and he goes, where is your wazir? Where, uh, uh, where's your minister? Where's your minister? And the ambassador looks up and sees me down, and he went, oh, down there, points to economy class. The Egyptian official laughs. It's like, ha, 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 ha. No, seriously, which one is your minister? <laughs> Because the idea <laughs> that a Brit the idea a minister of the government yeah. was flying economy was just so alien to them. I think it was the fifth can of Guinness that he was laughing at. That's right, yeah. <laughs> so I've been restrained by the... Uh, by the so, so, so sometimes... And yeah. then you're treated like a god. You arrive, they put you in a car, you go to a little, kind of little private section of the, of the arrivals lounge and they offer you a, 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 a coffee or a, a tea. A Guinness, a pen, one of those little <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those little, yeah. Uh, so yeah, maybe some cashews or pistachio <laughs> nuts. and It's always lovely. And you get whisked through... You go through the metal detector, beep, 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 beep. No, go through, go through, it's fine. <laughs> so you get whisked through, you sit in the back of the... Oh, it's gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. You can see why people get addicted to foreign jobs. You see why St. Tony of Blair loved it so much. But I tell you, the rude... <laughs> he was helping these regimes, James. <laughs> the rude awakening, though, is when you come back. Because when you're over there, you are like a deity. You're like a god. When you get back here, back of the queue, wanker. <laughs> and uh, you're still there, like... And, of course... You're cute. You're going like the big. You're going like the big zigzaggy <laughs> queue at Heathrow, yeah. and you and 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 you can see people kind of. This won't work on the podcast. You can see people going along, going <laughs> as if like, don't look. Is that is that don't, is that is that sorry, is that, that, is that don't is it? And you can see, and you're like, oh. and um, and then every now and then, someone will go. Been anywhere nice on your holiday? <laughs> <laughs> You should have seen me in Cairo, mate. Yeah, exactly. Taking on the pyramids single-handedly. <laughs> no, so that's quite. But there you go. It's good to. It's good to. Uh, it's good to be reminded of your place, which is the back of the queue. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it, it, the Foreign Office. Obviously, one of the benefits of being a Foreign Office minister is those things. I mean, it's obviously given your backstory, your your family heritage, and things. Is the Foreign Office the place as a minister you always wanted to be, or? Is it, given your military background? Hell, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> defence. <laughs> so remember, I only did defence Tuesday nights and one weekend a month. Reserve force, we've discussed this before. So you've had, and it's really awkward, so Tom is a really, he's a, he's a really good friend of mine. He's one, probably one of my closest friends. And I was listening to your podcast with him, and he was going, oh, and there was that time of doing this, and I was there with Dan Jarvis doing that. I was sitting there going, oh, I flew... I wore a shiny patch in the arse of my trousers at a desk in Luton. That was my walk. <laughs> what did you do during the war, Daddy? I was like, you know Blackadder? Yeah. You know Captain Darling? 
That was me. <laughs> and Tom's there giving it, giving it Ruthie Tooty these war stories with bloody Haribo and cops hanging out. <laughs> and um, I was in Luton. You played your part. I did. I did. I played my part. But obviously you wanted to serve, you know, even if it is the Territorial Army. Yeah. So you and Marc Francois are there in Luton. <laughs> <laughs> Very good, Luton, serving your country. Two brave boys. I tell you something. Tell you something. Did you notice though? Did you notice they never attacked us in Luton? Yeah. Think about that. Yeah. Yeah. Where was Tom? Basra. Where were they attacking? Basra. Where was I? Luton. Where were they attacking? Not Luton. They knew where the soft spot was. Yeah, it was Tom Bowler and, and, and Dan Jarvis eating their Haribo, being the kind of like weak flank. Me and Mark, me and Mark, tip of the spear, mate. Tip of the spear. Yeah, think on that. Thank you. <laughs> oh, mate. <laughs> I mean, the, the thing is, I would never join the T8. So, like, you wouldn't have you, mate. Wouldn't have you. Well, I know you would, and, and rightly so. Actually, rightly we so. probably would. <laughs> <laughs> I've got some forms. I've got some forms. I mean, not with my asthma. Surely I'd be ineligible. I'm feeble lunged. Yeah, you can, you can blag it. I'm sure you can probably blag it. You, you can probably blag it. You know, you, yeah, no, you know, you're right. You wouldn't have them. <laughs> <laughs> what would I be good at, do you think? If I, if I was forced to serve in the military, where would you put me? <laughs> <laughs> Who remembers it ain't our fault, Mum? <laughs> the Royal Artillery Concert Party. <laughs> lovely boy, lovely boy. <laughs> yeah, no, I reckon you could entertain the troops. You'd be okay. good at that. Like, uh, what was the name? It was the... Um... Vera Lynn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like a pin-up. <laughs> yeah, like Vera Lynn, or that other girl that was less famous but more popular. Oh. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... We, you... Oh, no, you asked me about being in the Foreign Office. No, I yeah. love being in the Foreign Office. Yeah, is that? Would you want to be foreign secretary? Is that the sort? Of I'd love to be foreign secretary. It's a brilliant, brilliant job. I was, sorry, I was going to tell you one of the things that the real wake-up call when 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 you um, when you go to somewhere like the Foreign Office, you get. As I say, the reason I've got a degree of empathy and uh, with a from with which a home, university? With a home secretary. <laughs> hey, <laughs> University of Life. <laughs> got a two-two. Yeah, um, I went to University of Life. I got chucked out. So. <laughs> So you get a briefing, and it's really funny the way you get all these briefings. You go up to the front office, you go up to the top floor, and you've got this secure bit. So no mobile phones, where all, this, where all the very secure stuff happens. And uh, when, I was, when I first went to the foreign office, I was a minister of the Middle East and North Africa. And there's a lot of you know, dangerous and sensitive things going on. Then you get, a, you get a briefing. And you sit around the table, and my, my private secretary, my, my uh, civil servant, would say, uh, Minister, um, let me introduce you to the people uh, around the table. And they'll say, uh, uh, this is Mark Smith. Uh, Mark Smith is the you know, head of the uh, uh, Arabian Peninsula team. Uh, this is Angela Wilson. Angela Wilson is the head of the North Africa department. This is Mark. Uh, this is uh, Brian Watkins. Brian Watkins <laughs> is our chief Arabist. And you're like, name, job title, name, job title, name, job title, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> and then... Um, and then you ask a question like, what, what would such and such country do if we changed our posture on this? Everyone looks at Mark, <laughs> and Mark says, and, they, and he speaks this way, which is a bit of a giveaway, because most people, if I said to you, who's going to win, you know, Palace versus Arsenal, who's going to win? You'll go, oh, Arsenal's smashing it. Arsenal are going to smash it. A bit of a wobble recently, but I think they're on the up curve, blah, blah, blah. And you say it with complete certainty. Yeah. Turn around someone like Mark. Mark will say, well, 
our most recent assessment, which we hold medium to medium high uh, confidence, you're like, oh, does Mark work for us? Mark works with us. Oh. <laughs> oh. And like, there's this, like, you know, 30 year old looking complete normal. I can't believe Mark Francois got that. <laughs> <part>. <laughs> I know, <it's> that <laughs> Indeed. But it's amazing. I mean, genuinely working wow. with second can. It's amazing working with these. You, you get to work with like the most. Um, oh, balls. You get to work with the most genuinely amazing, amazing people in the Foreign Office. And you get to work on really, really amazing stuff. But what's cool is you clearly love it. Like, I do. Because some You're allowed. People, but some people will like play it cool about the cool stuff. They go, yeah, it's part of the job. You know, you have to. I mean, the Foreign Office must be. The Foreign Office defence must be like the two coolest really in terms of oh, intel yeah. spy stuff yeah so, so let me tell you about yeah, no, yeah. no 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 <laughs> oh go on yeah, if no one's listening yeah, yeah. So there's this thing right that yeah. i can't talk about yeah no it's the end of the anecdote i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> but with the cool like with the, when, the you cool sat, when you sat in those meetings have you heard stuff that has like chilled your blood yeah of course and yeah i mean and I know this is, this, is, this is one of those things, and there's a line, uh, I think it's in Ocean's Eleven, there's a line where... <laughs> <laughs> so everything in my life is referencing film. You yeah. just got to get your head around that, or cartoons. Um, and there's a, there's a bit where the George Clooney character turns... Turn, what on earth Something's is floating, floating in your drink? It Mate, looks is like that water past its sell-by date? It looks, <laughs> it looks like dead skin. Yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> so um, there's a line, there's a line, I think in Ocean's Eleven, where George Clooney turns around to the Matt, is it Matt Damon? Is, in the, is it Matt Damon? Yeah, I think so, yeah. is it? So there's yeah. one point, George Clooney turns around to the Matt Damon character. Uh, no, no, sorry, uh, the, the other one, the other good looking. Anyway, Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt. Is it Brad yes. Pitt? Who plays his number two in Ocean's Eleven? Yeah, Brad Pitt. It's Brad Pitt. Yeah, Brad Pitt. So George Clooney turns around to Brad Pitt. <laughs> God, and Brad this is a political. <laughs> and Brad Pitt. No, it's not Brad Pitt. It's the other one. Oh it's, my it's Matt God. Damon. Is it Matt Damon? No, it's Brad Pitt. There is Matt Damon in it, though, isn't there? There is. He turns around to Matt Damon. Usually this is like, right, gate skill shadow team one. Yeah. So he turns around to Matt Damon. And Matt Damon says, what, what are you doing? Where are you going? And he says, I don't want to come across all mysterious, but I can't tell you what, and I can't tell you why. And sometimes when you're in the front office, people say, oh, you know, what's going on, this kind of stuff. And, and you, do get, you do get exposed and you have to make decisions on really, 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 really scary stuff and then shut up about it. And that's, that's, the, that's the deal, that's the deal. Um, same with the home office. You know, you've got home office ministers who have to make really difficult decisions on really scary stuff and then never talk about it. And all the stuff that doesn't happen, all the attacks that don't happen, all the bad people that get caught and, you know, uh, uh, and, and sentenced that you never hit the newspapers, never hit the headlines, um, and you never get credit for it because no one ever thanks you for the bad thing that you prevented from happening. And, that's th and that is it. And, and, you know, deal is you get to do really important stuff and you don't get to brag about it. And I'm... I'm very, very comfortable with that arrangement. But it must, you must want to tell someone. You must want to tell, like, your wife or someone you went to school with. You want to go, fucking hell, man, we locked this guy up. He was going to, like... There must be part of it. Was we got him. We got him at the border. Yeah, you'd love to, wouldn't you? But you don't. I guess amongst colleagues, you can just say. You and no. Pretty can sit there and have a whiskey or whatever. No, no, no. no. It's called compartmentalisation. 
you've got certain compartments. So certain people in a certain compartment know certain stuff and you don't discuss it with people not in your compartment. Okay. Are you in the same compartment as Pretty? No. Okay. So who's in your compartment? Me. <laughs> Mark. <laughs> Do you ever talk to yourself about it? Yeah. No, I don't trust me. I'd, <laughs> I'd blab it to everybody. No, I mean, look, it's, and it's, it's um, yeah, but at some point, at some point in 30 years' time, it's all declassified. You'll look back and go, oh, he really did screw up. That was the... Because <laughs> it's very hard for the public. Obviously, we know that this stuff goes on. Mm. But it's very hard to know the scale of it, the daily threat we face in a city like London. Do you think the public have a sort of reasonable assessment of the threat we face? Or is it worse than we think? And if we saw the stuff you saw, we'd just be panicking all day long. No, no. I think, I think um, we know, I think we've got a pretty good idea who's trying to screw us over. And we've got a pretty good idea about who works with us to try and, to try and protect ourselves. You know, we've got, we got some really, really good friends around the world um, in, terms of, in terms of our you know, international partners. Um, we kind of, uh, you know, th this is the UK. We've lived through... We've lived through um, IRA terrorism. We've lived through Islamist terrorism. Um, we're a pretty robust uh, country, uh, and we're not easily freaked out. Um, and so, you know, the, the the threats, the threats change, the threats evolve. But I don't think, as a country, we're we're particularly naive about that. And I think that that is a that is a that is a good thing. And you know, when and when we say, look, you know, there are a whole load of people working really, really hard to try and keep us safe, for the most part, people say, thank you, you know, I believe in I and, and thank you for that. And they don't ask, they don't ask questions to which we can't give answers. And this Mark fella then, so he, <laughs> is he? It's a she actually. Oh, right, okay, so it's a she. <laughs> it's a cover name, not one of the best that I've got. <laughs> um, is she? Um, or he. Or he. So he keeps guessing, you see, he keeps guessing. They, them, they. They, them, them oh. slash they, yeah. Are they directly employed by the British state? Uh, and do you ever find out who they work for, or is it important that you don't know? Oh, no, they're, they're, yeah, they're, they're civil servants. They're public servants. They're, they're on the public payroll, um, and they you know, abide by you know, British laws and that kind of stuff. They're, yeah, they're part of the home team. Yeah, yeah. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's a sort of, maybe a dotted line rather than a, than a, than a, than a sort of... Uh, well, yeah, oh, God, I'm just drifting into stuff I probably... 
Everyone knows which agencies report into uh, which government departments, um, and you know the they're, they're typically, yeah, you know, they're, they're people that work for us in very very sensitive jobs, very difficult jobs, um, and the, yeah, they they keep us informed, they keep the Home Office informed, they keep the Cabinet Office informed, they keep the Ministry of Defence informed. It's part of they are part of our eyes and ears around the world, keeping us keeping us safe, both here and Brits abroad, keeping them safe as well. I mean, this is so much better than in transport or DEFRA, isn't it? Like, <laughs> So today, I get a buzz from keeping people safe. Tomorrow, Matt, I might get a buzz from getting people to work on time. Different, but equal. <laughs> <laughs> Only but one's a bit shit and the other's a bit amazing. <laughs> But you can only get people to work on time. If, if they're not dead. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you see? Now you get it. That's joined up government. That though. is. That is joined up government. No stovepipes. Not in this government, mate. Not in this government. No, 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 no. And is it, at the moment, is it, a, is it a happy government? Is everyone getting on together? Everything is wonderful when you're part of a team. <laughs> and are you part of the team? Everything is wonderful. <laughs> now, really, it's like... Um, I think we're in a pretty good, genuinely, I think we're in a pretty good place. I mean, I'm drinking lots of Guinness and, <laughs> and, and later on I might go off, I might go off peace. But no, I think, um, bearing in mind, we have just come out of a global pandemic which has smashed the world economy and there is a brutal, brutal, brutal war in our near neighbourhood and all the other nasty, scary things that were nasty and scary have not gone away just because some other nasty, scary thing has happened. Other than that, I think we're in a pretty good shape. Yeah, yeah. But as a government, I mean, I guess, as a collection of political individuals and the behaviour of those individuals and the <laughs> public perception about the behaviour of those individuals. I mean, let's take the Prime Minister, first of all. You go way back with him. You were on the yeah, um, GLA when I he was... I knew him before he was famous. <laughs> <laughs> Has he changed at all since No, he? not one iota. No, not, not really. Not really. He is the way he is. And I've worked with him, as you say, I've worked with him since before he was Mayor of London, um, and like everybody else, he's got strengths and weaknesses. Um, I, I happen to think his strengths outweigh his weaknesses, otherwise I wouldn't have supported him either as Mayor of London twice or as Prime Minister now. Um, and that's not to say he's perfect, but I defy anyone to point to a political leader who is perfect. And, and what, you, what we have to be grown up enough to, to, to recognise is that perfection, whilst an admirable aspiration, is not actually possible. And so what you've got to do is you've got to, you've got to you know, work to amplify the strengths and mitigate the weaknesses. And that is true with any leader, whether it's political, business, military, whatever. But there are those that are perhaps closer to perfection than others. <laughs> um, <laughs> Tony Blair. But he is, obviously, Boris presents particular challenges. <laughs> it, it, must, it, it must feel a bit harder to defend him at the moment. Well, <laughs> no, actually. No. I, so this afternoon, this afternoon, I had a meeting with a couple of Ukrainian MPs. And I am reminded, again, benefit of being a foreign office minister, sometimes you can look back at your own country through the eyes of others. And actually, in Ukraine and many other parts of the world, particularly Eastern Europe, who are looking very, very, very immediately at the uh, threat that Russia poses, and they rate him top, top, top tier. 
the Ukrainians, when asked to rate uh, uh, political leaders, number one, unsurprisingly, President Zelensky, number two, Boris Johnson, and then a big gap, and then others. Um, and he has shown a level of uh, decisiveness and political courage, which now feels blindingly obvious. But we were arming, equipping, and training the Ukrainian armed forces a number of years ago, before it was cool or fashionable. Um, the, when he was foreign secretary, he uh, expelled a whole load of Russian intelligence uh, agents from London, actions which are now being replicated across other uh, countries uh, around the globe. And as I say, you know, uh, and uh, this is not this is not me claiming perfection. Of course, it isn't. But whether it's you know pumping money early into the vaccine development program, and if that had not worked, he would have been crucified for that. But it did work, which means that we got a vaccine ahead of everyone else, pushing really hard on the vaccine rollout not flirting with the anti-vaxxers as some leaders did around the world. So we didn't have any kind of credible anti-vax, which meant, which meant our vaccine rollout was one of the best in the world, which means our economy is coming out of, of, of downturn quicker than anywhere else. We have one of the lowest levels of unemployment in the world. We are right at the front edge when it comes to supporting uh, the Ukrainians and building that coalition of support to isolate Russia and to choke off the financing for their war machines. So you ask me, is it easy to defend them? Yes, it bloody well is. <laughs> yes, it bloody well is. Is he perfect? No. But he is absolutely doing the right thing. I'm absolutely happy to defend him. And that won't please everybody, but you don't get into politics to please everybody. Well, you I think a round of applause there. I think that's the best defence of, <laughs> uh, best defense of him I've ever heard. I think that's a better defence of him than, than he's put that's up. That's why I get the big bucks, fellas. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess the people's issues with him, they would agree on the vaccine. They would agree on furlough. They yeah. would agree with... I forgot that, yeah. Not just him, but successive prime ministers training and, and, and arming Ukraine against Vladimir Putin. But I guess what's annoying people is this whole thing of one rule for him, one rule for other people, uh, having parties at Downing Street that are against the rules, obviously fixed penalty notices are now mm. being issued. Um, privately, obviously, people must be annoyed at him. I mean, d d has it affected your judgment of him as a leader? Look... The, 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 yeah, the, the stuff that happened at Downing Street, the parties, all this kind of stuff, it's really, really frustrating. And I'm quite sure, I mean, there are lots of, pe there are lots of people who, who, who should have known better. Um, you know, Downing Street is a funny place. It is a home and it's an office and there are people working together. I mean, you've heard all the explanations about it. The bottom line is, yeah, but look, the bottom line is, that it's one of these things, you look back and you say, should it have happened like that? Of course it shouldn't have happened like that. Um, does it really hurt people? Absolutely. Are they angry? Absolutely. And have they a right to be angry? Absolutely. But all leaders make some mistakes. And, the, and, and, and as I say, it's not about pursuing perfection. All leaders make mistakes. And the question we ask is, on the, on, the, on the big judgment calls, are they calling it right? And time after time, whether it be on the medical, the economic, the, the, the furlough, the financial support, the support to the Ukrainians, you know, being right at the forefront of the international community, over and over and over again, just as he did in London, just as he did in London, on the big judgment calls, he calls it right. And, 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 I, and I get, I totally get 
why so many people are so angry and upset with news about those events at Downing Street. I totally get it. There's no point in pretending that that isn't legitimate, because it is. But on the big judgment calls, he does get it right, and no leaders are perfect. And, and for me, it's, it, it, like everything in life, like everything in life, you've got to balance the advantages, the disadvantages, and for me, the advantages massively outweigh the disadvantages. You're a phenomenal advocate of, of the government and of him, and a very powerful communicator, which is why they use you a lot. I mean, do you ever think, actually, I'm, I'm getting a bit sick of constantly having to go on TV and defend <laughs> something that I don't want to defend or I don't agree with? It's, it's, it's a team sport. I mean, you... you um, so imagine if imagine if one of the imagine if one of the forest defenders, you know, put in a fantastic tackle against yeah. some Derby what, scum or Dar whatever. Yeah, yeah, Derby, Derby County, yeah. and having taken the ball off the Derby attacker, yeah. turn around and put it past the forest goalkeeper and went, yay! Yeah. Everyone would turn around and go, what a bigger word of because <laughs> it's a team sport. Yeah, it's a team sport, and actually. Uh, the, 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 the point about being a part of the team is there are things that you might look at and you go, you know, well, I might have made a different judgment call. I, I would, if, if I were in that job, I might have done it slightly differently. But the point is, I'm not in that job, I'm in this job. And just as I would expect one of my colleagues to be willing to uh, go on the media and support me, then I feel it's my job to go and support them. Because if we got to the stage where we all just went off, you know, and just pursued our own, you know, course of action, government would fall apart. It just doesn't work like that. It's not the sort of thing the Tory party would ever do, is have <laughs> a load of ministers resigning to <laughs> further their own career. And look, I mean, the bottom line is, the bottom line is, you know, we're the most, you know, we're the most, uh, we are, of all the political parties, you know, we are the hardest to uh, coerce, cajole, coordinate, um, and so, uh, no, I don't. Yeah, I, 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 it's part of the deal. It's part of the deal. But does you don't have to be a minister. If you don't want to do it, you don't have to do it. Lots of backbench seats you can sit in. You That's know? true. But people sort of find their role, don't they? And I remember John Reid was always the person that New Labour would put out. It's this phenomenal, yeah. robust. And you, in a way, are sort of fulfilling that role. You're always. I don't mind being compared with John Reid, actually. I always quite like John Reid. Always quite great. Tough on defence. Tough on defence. Bald. Getting there, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but you're bald through choice, aren't you? I mean, you could. I'm sorry, there was a gag there. <laughs> well, I was talking about the Only because of manscaping. Only because of manscaping. Do you manscape? <laughs> <laughs> no. You're the only guest I would ever ask. <laughs> Show you later. <laughs> I guess not. Like, you're a modern guy in a modern government. Does, do you think Boris manscapes? Honestly, you'd think he would pay so much attention to the undercarriage and nothing at all to the mop on his head. I mean, come on. Oh, that's a good point. Does the hair on the head tell us something about I the I don't hair? know. I've never seen his bollocks. I don't know. <laughs> but you have seen his arse? <laughs> Probably. I don't know. But he never said, oh, yeah, I'll close come on, to you, Jim Bob. I, I, you know, I, I, you know, I started cheating. I carries on to me about it looking like a fucking thatched cottage. <laughs> it looks like a burst bag of hay down there. I, what do I, a back sack and crack or whatever. That is disconcertingly accurate. <laughs> <laughs> no, anyway, I've not, I have not had that. We're close, we're not that close. 
Uh, uh, do any ministers talk about this sort of thing? Is, this is modern politics, I guess. Do anyone? Do people talk about not enough? Bodies? Not as much as I think they should. Actually, <laughs> I, I think agree. you know you, you should you should prevent. Sorry, you should present a professional, well-groomed image to the British people. Because Rishi looks very well-groomed. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> I am not. I am not going to go there. I am not going to go there. I think he is manscaped. If anyone was, though, yeah. although I'm not going to go there, I'm just saying, if anyone were to, although I don't know, yeah. and I'm not going there. Sounds like you just did. <laughs> 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 on a list of most likely to least likely. Yes. And I'm not going to go there. Yeah. I'm just saying, Off although I'm not saying, <laughs> just, yeah. although I'm not going to go there. I think he does the lot. I think he's like, shaves, he waxes, <laughs> all the oils, the mist. Well, you know, because he will do whatever it takes. Yeah. <laughs> 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 How's he at the moment? Is, uh, is, his, is his pecker up? <laughs> <He's> <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I, it, it's funny, in, in the first bit, I mean, I... I um, I really like Rishi. I really like. Him. He's the same intake as me. He's, he's a really, really good guy, and he's, he has always been very, very, very realistic. He knew that during furlough, as you say, when he was the guy who was who was you know, pumping lots of money into uh, uh, into the uh, into the economy to help people keep food on the table and a roof over their house. That of course he was loved, mm-hmm. and I and I said, you know. I remember I bumped into him in the in the corridors in Parliament, and I said he was shaving his balls. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, uh, and I said, how are you? And yeah, good, good, good. And he's and, and I, I can't remember exactly what I said. I kind of made a bit of a joke, like you know, most popular guy on the planet. And he said, at the moment, yeah. Mm. And he knew, he absolutely knew that when you're dishing it out, you're going to be popular, and when the the, the check comes at the end of the meal, someone's going to have to pay for it, and he would be less popular. And he's never been. He's never been naive or, or foolish about the fact that there was going to have to be a balancing of the accounts, um, which is I, I, I still rate him, respect him, and like him a lot. Okay, amongst the cabinet then, when the check does come at the end of the meal, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't any have any poppadoms. This <laughs> really gets me. I did not have any poppadoms, and it's just like if I wanted, I would have ordered poppadoms. You know, it just it really does get me when that happens. So you're the tight one. You're the one who says we shouldn't split it equally. I should just pay for what I've had. How is that wrong? How is that illegitimate? Because it's to bring it back to a football or a rugby analogy, over the course of the season it evens itself out. Only it never does, does it? It never does. Because the guy, the guy that always has, the guy that always has that funny prawn thing at like five quid more than every other curry on the menu. He never turns around and says, actually, t- I'll just have a dal. I just have a taco dal at like three pounds twenty tonight. He always, always, always goes for the prawn with gold leaf and sparkly what's it <laughs> at like 12 pounds whilst the rest of us make do at like five pounds 50 it's always the same guy yeah but you might have had a couple of guinnesses <laughs> he might not drink. i see you <laughs> <laughs> but maybe that you're having stuff that he thinks well hang on cleverly he's always on the guinnesses i'm teetotal he hasn't got me about the prawns he got through five pints that is and legit. a bag of that pins. That is, that is legit. That is legit. Yeah. <laughs> brought, his, brought his own ultrasonic cleaning machine. <laughs> um, no, that's... Uh, what were we talking about? We're about, about going out for dinner with the cabinet. Oh, right, yeah. No, I don't. I, NFI, mate. I don't... No, no, no. I keep, really? keep it real. Really? You keep, keep it real. it You keep it separate? You don't go out eating with colleagues? Well, no, we eat together sometimes. Um, I know this is going to sound really 
you know, oh, smallest violin in the world. Mm -hmm. Don't have a lot of spare time. I mean, it's, it's, that, that's, that's what they don't tell you when someone rings you up. Um, last time I was on, I listened back, mm -hmm. so I didn't use the same gags. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have I'm no like you. I was say, I'm like you. Um, I, li I listened back, and I, and I did a little anecdote about when I got called. Um, and what they don't tell they ring you up and say, oh, are you, you know, can you uh, have, see the Prime Minister? Such? They don't tell you. They don't basically tell you that, oh, by the way, uh, ministerial job is, is like a 70-hour you know, week gig. And you're like, uh, they don't mention that. They don't mention that, whilst you're also doing the kind of parliamentary stuff um, and trying to have some kind of a home life. They don't, they don't tell you that. So, so um, you, you, you don't have long, luxurious curries at the uh, Kennington Tandoori. Because everyone, that around, everyone around Westminster knows the Kennington. I haven't been there for a long time. A long Ken time. Clark's favourite curry house. Ken Clark. Uh, and uh, earlier, uh, well, I'll have the uh, prawn thing with these sparkly ones. Yeah, everybody <laughs> does a Ken Clark impression. So, uh, so at one point, whilst you're still in the house, there were a number of us sitting in uh, in the tea room uh, at Parliament, and we were all doing our Ken Clark impressions. <laughs> and Ken Clark came in, <laughs> and he said, "So, what are you doing?" <laughs> And we said, we're all doing impressions of you. <laughs> <laughs> and he sat down and he had a go. <laughs> and he wasn't the best. <laughs> he wasn't even, not even a podium finish. I would say he was about the fourth best Ken Clark impression. <laughs> Simon Hoare does a brilliant Ken Clark impression. Much better than Ken Clark. Ken Clark's shit at doing Ken Clark impression. <laughs> he hasn't got the voice, he hasn't got the tone. Simon nailed it, Ken Clark. That's why I had to kick him out. <laughs> Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant chancellor, but a shit Ken Clark. <laughs> so who else? So it, can Simon Hoare impersonate other people? Are there, are, are there any other good mimics in the house? Yeah, Simon, Simon is uh, Simon is is pretty good. Yeah, ev so everyone could do Ken Clark. Yeah. So who else can everyone else do? Um, everyone, everyone thinks they can do William Hague. Just about to say that. Everyone, everyone thinks they can do William Hague. What's your William Hague like? Shh, that is awful. Um, thou, it's a bit thou. It's, uh, That's really good. It's not, it's not that good. No, it's not that. That's about it. You'll be dead. No, that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be dead. Some of you may not be here in 30 or 40 years. You'll be dead. So oh, uh, everyone, everyone does that. Um, everyone tries Everyone tries to do a David Cameron, but just like you, it's shit. No, no, no. I, I don't think that's right, actually. No, <laughs> actually well, I, I it's like got better. It's got better. Having a go, having a pump, you know, that gets me going. You look a bit like him as well when you do it. You look a bit like him. Can you get a bit more forehead? <laughs> <laughs> I have, yeah. I'm sort of, it's the chubby face with the high... You got good at David Cameron just as he left public... It's true of all my impressions. Oh, no, I perfect them and then they get fired. Yeah. So. so everyone does... I trouble. should stop working on his James Clever. <laughs> so, I, oh, so I don't think I've got an accent. So I don't think I've got... I think I'm just so vanilla. No, you've got a sort of huskiness. Oh, get in. <laughs> <laughs> really? But then there's a sort of London undertone, isn't Tell there? Mrs. C that. Tell Mrs. C Tell that. Tell Mrs. C that. So you've got a bit of geezer. Have but I? then you've got that lovely... Oh. You've basically got like rich, deep gravy, James Clever. It's like a Pavarotti. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? You're right. Yeah, I no, didn't want to mention right it. Is that, isn't <laughs> it? Yeah. Slightly rugger, but with, but not oh, as cliche. I'm wearing a tweed you're jacket. You're right. Too, too much more cliche than a tweed. It's a, tweed a lovely tweed jacket. It's a, it's a lovely tweed jacket. It's a lovely tweed jacket. So it's older than you are, I think. Isn't it? Well, it's aged better than I have. <laughs> <laughs> so you talk about the, the cost of being a minister in, in terms of your time. Are there, is there stuff that you miss 
that you can't do now, that you think, actually, when all this is over, I'm going to look forward to after all this? It, it is, it's the one thing that you, you can't make more of, which is, which is time. Um, and y you, can, you can try and spread it more thinly, you can try and be really time efficient, but you just, you just don't have time. Um, and I'm really, really lucky, and I know, I think some of them in the audience here, they see, I can't, it's pitch black out there, there might be no one out there. Um, <laughs> but I've got, I've, got some of my, I've got some of my team in the audience, and I tell you something, and, and nobody, nobody, nobody gives them credit. If, I, if it weren't for my parliamentary team, my civil servants are amazing, if it wasn't for my parliamentary team, I'd be absolutely screwed, because you just, you just can't do it. You just can't do it all. And so you have to rely on your team. And if they're, if they're good, that's great. And if they're not, you're screwed. Uh, because you, you just can't do it all. And that's the, that's the thing they don't tell you when you, when you become a minister. Um, and I think that, um, and I, I, you know, I, yeah, you, ju you, you just never have enough time. Um, not enough sleep and not enough time. But has that impacted your family life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, you see less of your family. So, um, we've got two weeks recess on Sunday night. I'm flying off to America for a week. Uh, I'll be so that is a week that I'm not going to be spending with my my my, my wife and my family because I'm working. You know, and people it really gets me when people describe recess as holiday. MPs going on holiday. Really? Oh, that's good to know because I'm I'm going on holiday to the. Uh, State Department in America, <laughs> and you know, which is, you know, I hear the cocktails are not as good as uh, Lanzarote. Um, but, um, well, it's a fascinating job, and I love it. I love it, but you've got to sacrifice things, and, and, and time, time with the ones that you love is one of the things you sacrifice. And obviously that, you know, can be particularly pertinent, but if you're in a situation where your wife's not well, mm -hmm. and you're not getting to spend time with her, that is, I imagine, very hard to take. Yeah, so she's got breast cancer at the moment. She's, she's uh, being treated for breast cancer, which came as a really nasty shock just ahead of Christmas. That wasn't what I was hoping for. I was hoping for socks. Um, <laughs> actually, I got socks, but she got cancer. So, you know, in terms of, in terms of gifts that we uh, respectively got, I think I, you know, mine was more useful, <laughs> frankly. So, yeah, Susie got diagnosed with breast cancer just before Christmas. Um, and look, I know this is the most cliched thing that you can possibly say. This is the bit where the Tory politician basically absolutely lavishes praise on the NHS. So pin your ears back, ladies and gentlemen, because <laughs> I'm going to give it both barrels. Um, she spotted something. She got, she got out of Bath on Sunday evening. We were in London, came back to London uh, on the Sunday night. She uh, got out of the bath. Uh, she was tying her hair up in a towel. She saw... like of the skin it's not just lumps ladies and gentlemen check your tits not okay ladies check your tits because <laughs> it's not just lumps so she saw a puckering of the skin and went oh that doesn't look right and I said no I've not seen that before so that was a Sunday night on the Monday morning she saw the GP GP referred her to a specialist um, uh, late was it later that week or early the following week she was in front of the specialist did a barrage of tests it was confirmed less than two weeks after she first spotted it the treatment started less than two weeks after that um, the cancer's shrinking, she's on the road to recovery, it seems to be good news, and I cannot, I cannot express my gratitude and respect uh, for, the, for the team. Uh, she's at Guy's Hospital, they are absolutely amazing, absolutely amazing. Um, and because they are amazing, and because anyone that knows Mr C knows that she is the most 
fantastic woman since women were invented. Back in the 30s, I think it was. <laughs> um, no, late 20s. Gods of Eden, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, I've been able to continue doing my job, you know, um, which, is, which, is, which is absolutely fantastic. So, yeah, it's tough. It is tough. Uh, and it's particularly tough at the moment. Liz has been, I mean, Liz uh, Truss has been amazing. She's kept me as busy as I want to be because I think if I was just wallowing in it, I, I would really, really struggle. But she's made it very, very clear that as and when I need time, I can have time. And I've not called in those markers just yet. And maybe I will do it at some point soon. Um, and I tell you, the other thing that really gets me is politics, which is, caricatured has been this nest of vipers. The love that has been expressed to me from right the way across the political spectrum, from both sides of the house, at every level, um, and directly to Susie, people sending her messages through social media and, and, and directly, has been amazing. And we can, be real, we can be real shits to each other in politics, we really, really can. But actually what's really struck me is that when something horrible like this happens, the side of the political world that most people don't see, that I know you try and bring out in this podcast and the, and, 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 and the, um, the other stuff you do, that really comes to the fore. And you suddenly realise, actually, there are some really lovely, lovely people in politics. And who are they? Who are they? Well, there's two of them. <laughs> no, look, look, seriously, seriously. You know, like every, every, everybody, everybody. And people I've had blazing rows with, really blazing rows with. Just, you know, they'll, they'll stop me in the corridor and, and they'll say, I heard about Susie, you know, please pass my love on. Uh, and it really makes a difference. It really it recharges the emotional batteries. Full of good people. Some of whom deeply politically wrong, but lovely, lovely people nonetheless. And including some in the opposition parties <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah, got there. Got there first. Got oh, there first. Fuck it. I got there first. <laughs> um, so it sounds as if well, obviously don't want to, you know, touch wood. She's going to be okay fairly soon. Yeah. Well, look, no, well, not fairly. It's a long, drawn-out process. So um, she's she's going through chemo at the moment, um, and that's that that is brutal. Oh, that is brutal, and it's just. That's a real marathon. It's a real slog. She's been going through chemo, as I say, since just before Christmas, um, and it is as it is as horrible as you could imagine, and then a bit more, um, and then you know she'll need to go through surgery, and then there's hormone therapy. It drags out for a very, very, very long time. But um, we caught it early enough. Uh, the doctors seem pretty confident that she'll get through it. Um, you don't want to count your chickens too early, but as you say, touch wood. I think we're I think we're heading in the right direction. And I mean, yeah. so really brought the mood down. <laughs> Should we go back to knob gags? Richie's oh, bollocks. Let's talk about Richie's hairy bollocks. <laughs> we'll do it in a second, but just, just, just on the on the politics thing. Cause obviously, the personal stuff's very hard, and it's it's she's not here. We're talking about her. And mm. I'm aware that it's sort of her medical situation, but um, on the politics of it, then has it given you a, a renewed love of the National Health Service? No, I've always loved it. My mother was a midwife. I, I, I was born and literally brought up in Lewisham Hospital. My mum was a midwife in Lewisham Hospital. And when I would finish school, because dad was self-employed and worked 
stupid comedy ridiculous hours, I would finish school, I would go to Lewisham Hospital, I would sit in mum's office, mum at, at that time, by the time I was at school, was um, uh, uh, one of the more senior midwives, so she had an office to herself. I would go to her office and I would do my homework in Lewisham Hospital. So I have always adored the NHS, warts and all. Um, so there's no renewed love to the NHS because I, I was never out of love with the NHS. Got to remember, the Conservative Party has been the custodian of the NHS for most of the life of the NHS. It is in good hands under the Tories. I guarantee you that. And I know it's the lazy left wing. I'm not saying you're lazy or left wing. <laughs> I think I'm lazier than I am left, actually. Fair point. <laughs> but, 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 but um, you know, m most Tories are as reliant on the NHS as most other people. And I love it. And, I'm, you know, I'm, I, you know I'm, I'm incredibly proud. Incredibly proud of it. I mean, it's, it's, it's a... It's a, it's, a, it's a British institution. It's, it, it, it partially defined. It's the closest we have to a national religion. Yeah, and it's probably the most socialist thing we do as a country. Yep. And you're comfortable with that bit? Yep. So you're, you're a kind of lefty. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's the question. What's your most left-wing opinion? That the NHS is... There's lots of things. Uh, there's lots of things. I mean, in terms of... In terms of fairness and equality, I mean, um, I, you know, I, I, and I think most Conservatives recognise that some people get to be really lucky in life. Um, and uh, meritocracy is the word that lucky people use to justify their success, yeah? Um, and so recognising that some people... Are lucky. So I've, I've always regarded myself as lucky. I've got a stable family home, I've got a loving family, had a good education, I've always been really, really supportive. None of those things I had any influence over whatsoever. So I, on that regard, was lucky. And I've been able to get on in life because I was lucky. And you add to it a whole load of focus and hard work, but without that initial massive injection of luck, I'd have been screwed. And some people who are just as smart and just as hardworking and just as dedicated and just as focused but were born into circumstances which held them back were not lucky through no fault of their own. And recognising that, you might regard as left-wing, I actually regard it as just common sense, and making sure, and this is where, uh, the, this is where levelling up is so key, recognising that there are some real structural advantages. So if you are born in London, as I was, you are given huge advantage through luck of geographical birth. If you're in Hartlepool, for example, you've got a much, much tougher starting life. So the mirror image of me in Hartlepool would not be sitting in this seat doing my job talking to you through no fault of their own. And recognising the fact that, that, that it is, I think, the duty and responsibility of government to where you can mitigate some of that differential of luck is really, really key without holding people back that are lucky. It's not their fault they were born into lucky circumstances, just as it's not the fault of people who were born into unlucky circumstances. So helping, the, helping people get the most of their talent, I think, is, is legit. Now, some people think that's terribly left-wing. I think it's common sense, and it's actually a really useful... No, it's a pragmatic use of the talent pool of our country. Call me left-wing. Go on. You're a commie, 
tanky, pinko, <laughs> pro-Putin, semi-Marxist, Venezuelan, Cuban, <laughs> you know, the old, old member for, for Moscow Eats. I wasn't planning to ask this. What's your most right-wing opinion? <laughs> <laughs> I've never done this with a guest before. It's thrilling. Most right-wing. It's this for everyone. Anyone that holds a knife wrong, anyone holds a knife like a pen, yeah. yeah, oh yeah. I think it was going to be like a tough on crime thing. You no, mean that like is a tough on crime. <laughs> it's a crime because you don't meant to hold it like a pen. You meant to hold it. You don't hold a knife like a. Do you hold a knife like a pen? Mate, I but you do. No, I'll oh, come. You're on. from the province. <laughs> I what? Do you mean like with a finger over it like that? Like a pen. I don't hold a knife. If that was a knife, I'd hold it like that. Yeah, that's right. That's good. Yeah, that's carve right. away it. Yeah, exactly. That tofu. <laughs> <laughs> like that. Uh, yeah. No, I don't know if it's right-wing, most right I think Thatcher was the, one of the best things that ever happened to this country. That's a pretty right-wing opinion. Yeah. But do you think we should have a Margaret Thatcher day? See, I don't think so. I actually think not, because cause th- cause where does it stop? So I, every now and then I, I, I open up Twitter and I'm told that it's like, it's international twist your spaghetti anti-clockwise day. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, mate, come on. <laughs> Seriously? And my worry is that, yeah, because if you have a Margaret Thatcher day, someone, someone like you, some left, proper lefty pinko, go, oh, we want a Tony Blair day. And, someone, and then... I'm like, not sure many lefties Tom Watson, you know, <laughs> Then Tom Watson will go, I want a Gordon Brown day. And then it's like, where does it stop? Yeah. Every day is... And if every day is special, no day is special. There you go. That's a bit, that's a bit um, round, isn't it? That's, it is, but it's also, it sounds really deep. Or simultaneously, either Another deep or, or could be on a fridge magnet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's kind of, it's either live, live, laugh, love, or it's, you know, it's, it's mm. I, I, I really aspire, struggle. I aspire to be a quote on a fridge magnet. You know what? You must be able to just get them. I'm going to go on moon pig. <laughs> and I'm going to pick out the most banal quote from tonight and I'm going to make one and I'm going to send it to you. If you do it, one of, if, you, if you make it one of those internet memes where you have like, a photograph of someone from like a long time ago. Yeah. You know, Reagan or Aristotle or... Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Darwin. And then, and then have it... Just, let's see whether we can get that trending. Let's see whether we can get the most asinine comment from oh, me tonight. And the there'll be plenty. Or the one about the Guinnesses and the pin. Darwin had a... Uh, see, if get, see if we can get people to believe that Charles Darwin <laughs> thought that pricking a can of Guinness and putting it in an ultrasonic <laughs> cleaning machine actually was what inspired him to, to write Origin of Species. <laughs> that would be, be good. We'll go with that. Let's go with that. Okay, let's just take a couple of quick questions from the audience. If we can ask for people to indicate clearly, and if we can have one-sentence questions, one-sentence answers, and I know it's tedious. I have to repeat the questions for the people listening to the podcast. So, yes, sir. You mentioned earlier, James, that you cover uh, America and Iran yeah. uh, in your department. Can you get me any World Cup tickets? <laughs> Great! <laughs> Absolutely. Can oh, you get us World oh, Cup tickets? I, I was the World Cup minister. Because oh, I, I had Qatar. I had Qatar yeah. as... Um, and it's Qatar, not... not Qatar, Qatar. Um, my kids really take the piss out of me when I, because I don't really speak Arabic. Um, but I, but <laughs> <laughs> so, so I call it Qatar, and my kids go, "It's Qatar." And and one of one of my uh, one of my contacts in, in Qatar, I, and I, I told him about this, and he said, he said, "No, James, you're right. They're wrong. It's a bit like me describing it as lone down <laughs> when we say Qatar. So it's Qatar. So I was the minister 
And I was doing all the work with the Qataris, getting all the security arrangements sorted out and all this kind of stuff. And then I got reshuffled. Yeah, but you're still... So I can't even get me World Cup tickets. Liz, trust, Liz, trust, you said she owes you one. She's a mate, she's a mate, I reckon. I, she, yeah, she sought me out, she sought me out. I'll, I'll text the, I've still got all the mobile phone numbers, I'll, I'll text one. <laughs> yeah, 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 and, and me, what was your name? Stuart. Stuart, Stuart. me and Stuart. Stuart, Stuart. Pierce reduced to asking a, a minister for tickets. <laughs> Stuart, I'll see, I'll see what I can do. I'll see what, I make no promises. Yeah. Which means no. I make no promises, <laughs> I'll see what I can do. I mean, and, and if, I mean, if you do get a whiff of a ticket, you know. Obviously, I'm against... Qatar's human rights record, but I think if I go to the final, <laughs> I can raise it with them directly. Yeah, this is this is the thing. <laughs> this is the thing. This is the thing. This is the thing. People respect you more when you raise issues like that whilst watching a World Cup football match. Yeah, yeah. Just at half time, going fuck it, sort it out, we mate. Yeah, cheers. <laughs> I lobbied him directly. Uh, time for one more question. Uh, oh yes, the young man at the back. Uh, obviously, you mentioned. Great question. Ooh, Did run on the phone on the vaccine, but you're under five because of Partygate. Uh, Labour polling ahead. Starmer polling ahead of Boris Johnson. Um, what's the issue that you think will allow the party to seize the initiative and poll ahead of Labour? So I think it's getting. I, I think it's being able to deliver on the things that we'd said we wanted to deliver on before coronavirus came along. So, th so, so, so Boris, the, you know, he. And he did this when he was mayor of London. He, he focused on, the, on protecting the bits of London that made London you know, wealthy and prosperous and all that kind of stuff. But he was also very conscious when he asked me to do uh, the youth ambassador role to try and make sure that kids weren't being stabbed to death on the streets of London. So he, he has got a real passionate desire to make sure that people and communities that have not, as he described, had, its, had their fair suck on the sauce bottle. You do it. I can't get it right. Well, you did not have a fierce suck on the sauce. sauce I mean, when he says it, it sounds like he means something else. Yeah, I, I, I get it. <laughs> James, how would you like to suck, suck on my sauce? But my man escaped sauce. <laughs> um, so, um, oh, I am so screwed. I am so screwed. <laughs> I promised myself I wasn't going to do this. Um, so, so he is absolutely as focused about making sure those parts of the country who for, we, as we now know, for decades have felt overlooked and left behind and not, uh, not, not, not being allowed to make full advantage of their talents, to unlock their potential. And it's not an overnight fix. And we've, and we've had this, not completely delayed, but certainly hampered because of the, uh, of the COVID situation. But is as passionate about that as, uh, as, as he was on the day of the election. So uh, I think that's what we're going to work towards. <sighs> Is it going to be a headline-grabbing win ahead of the next general election? I don't know, because it's not a quick fix. It's not a quick fix. Hopefully, we will have demonstrated enough forward progress for the people that voted, us, voted for us in 2019 to give us the time to get the job done. Um, but that is such an important agenda, an incredibly important agenda. And I know he's really, really passionate about it. Uh, and I think that's going to be the, that's gonna be the thing that, that we remind voters uh, right across the country why we, why we fought on that levelling up ticket in the 2019 general election and why it's so very important still. So levelling up, 
Leveling up. Leveling up. Um, and, and with uh, Boris against Keir Starmer, do, do you, I mean, Keir Starmer's a very different opponent to Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. Presents probably a more active yeah. threat to the fortunes of the party. Do you think, do you think the party is, the Tory party is uh, adequately adjusted, readjusted to the fact that they're fighting Keir Starmer and not Jeremy Corbyn? Look, Keir Starmer is a, 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 a much more professional prospect. I like Keir. I, I genuinely like Keir a lot. He was my... <laughs> respective fortunes uh he was my opposite number when i was at dexu he was shadow dexu yes and um you know one of us has, has, has shot on to greater things than the other one's keir starmer he is he is a he is a a fair and honorable uh, man um i don't think i don't think he's realized how much work he's still got to do clearing the mess out of the hinterland of the Labour Party. Uh, I listened to your podcast, I listened to your interview with um, Neil Kinnock, and I think you were right to be as lavishing of praise because he did a really, really courageous thing. He did what still needs to be done in the Labour Party. Um, and uh, whether Keir has got the enough political fuel in the tank to do that, I don't know, but the bottom line is, that's his problem, not mine. Our focus in government is to deliver good government, is to demonstrate to the British people we are the right choice at the next general election, that we're going to pursue the agenda that we set out in the 2019 general election with as much passion and alacrity as we did at that point. And, you know, Keir will be a more professional opposition leader than Jeremy Corbyn was. Um, but if we do what we do, if, 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 if we deliver on the promises that we've made and we do what we need to do, I don't think you'll get a look in. And I, I guess this is one of the things that, by pure chance, this ties together a lot of threads that we've talked about this evening. It's always nice to be able to sort of neatly sum up an evening in arguably the most important question. Do you think Keir Starmer is manscaped? <laughs> and do you know? I don't know. But again, he's just got, it's not a hair out of place. There's not a hair <laughs> out of place up there, which implies... You've got you side know. parting down there. Well, everyone's got side parting down there, haven't they? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, if you've all got different hairstyles, that'd be amazing. I'll check yours out later. Absolutely. Well, we're going to go and do that now. <laughs> and we're going to tweet about it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming tonight. Before we thank our phenomenal guest... Uh, James Cleverly. Thank you all for coming. Please, a huge round of applause to everyone who works at the Duchess Theatre now. Avalon, for making that possible. Thank you all for coming. So thank you, oh my word, for, again, one of the best guests in the history of this show, a fantastic guest. Please, a huge thank you to the amazing James Cleverly. <laughs> Oh, James Cleverly, what a fantastic guest. And that interview ran over. I was just completely absorbed in it. He's one of those people, James, where the time just evaporates. It goes so quickly. He's such good company. He's really good fun. And I think sometimes, and this is part of the reason, arguably the main reason I set up this podcast is, a lot of the time, politicians have to behave in a particular way. And I'll never forget Tessa Jowell saying this in the episode she recorded, was that her Children would often say to her when they'd watch her on telly, you always sound like a politician when you're on telly. 
and you never get a sense of the person in the same way. And James, I just, I've, I've, in a way, it's such a fun, it's such a relief that you have these big personalities in politics that have different characters and, and are fun loving. And, and, oh, you know, James has a real joie de vivre. You know, he loves life and he's great company. And um, there's no airs and graces with him. And he's just brilliant. You know, there's uh, obviously we have our political differences uh, and that's true of every guest, of course. Um, but I just, I really love talking to him. And he just obviously has, there are certain people I think in, in and this isn't a, you don't, this isn't a left, right thing. Some people are just optimists and some people are just pessimists. And obviously maybe that's not entirely binary. People might be a bit more optimistic. He just strikes me as one of those people that is one of life's optimists, that whatever is thrown at him, he always tries to see the positive, always tries to deal with it. And certainly uses his sense of humour as a way to keep himself going through, obviously, what can be personally or politically very diff difficult times. Um, so it was just a pleasure and the time flew by. And he, I tell you what, he put away a lot of Guinness and you would never have known. And I think the only other guest I've sort of seen... <laughs> drinking and leave no mark on was david davis i mean some of them i guess people talk about a culture in politics i don't think it's necessarily to do with politics probably more to do with james's love of rugby culture but nevertheless uh he got through a few of those guinnesses and um well was the same at the end as he was at the start uh so uh take that how you will but <laughs> i love the the wonderful thread of trying to guess which ministers were and weren't uh, man or indeed woman scaped. But uh, it's probably best that we stop that conversation right now. Thank you so much uh, for downloading this. Get your tickets for the future shows. I mean, what a lineup of guests in the coming weeks. Jacob Rees-Mogg, Rosanna Allen-Khan, Rosie Duffield, Lisa Nandy, Wes Streeting, Gary Neville, David Davis, Lindsay Hoyle, and more to be announced. And don't forget, I'm on tour with the stand-up show, Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right, including Saturday the 23rd of April at the Bloomsbury Theatre. And you can get tickets for all those shows at mattford.com. Please leave a five-star review, write a review. It always helps it get up the charts. Share it, subscribe, tell everyone, and I'll see you next time. Ta-ra. 